Let us pray. Holy Father, again we come before you and asking that you would manifest your presence among us as we enter into this portion of worshiping you. We know that we still reside in this body of clay. We are made aware of what the Apostle Paul said when he stated, When I would do good, evil is present with me. And how to, how to perform that which is good, I find not. Though we are to read and study Your Word, and we are to pray and humble ourselves before You, We are to obey Your commandments and walk in Your steps. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And yet at the same time, how all that works together with You working in us, we are not prepared to explain the demarcation of where one begins and the other stops. And yet we know that it is true that without You we can do nothing And still we are responsible to repent, to believe, to obey, to keep your commandments, worship and exalt you, as well as many other things. We pray that You would not only be with our nation, but the world around, that it might seem good in Your sight to exercise Your power to bring repentance into the hearts and the lives of people that there be a humbling before You. We know that You can do that. 
We know that you have done that at various times in history. But we also know that when a nation forgets you, according to the teaching of your word and according to what we have seen in history, destruction comes about. We live in a society that ignores you altogether. When the floods and the rains, the storms, the earthquakes, the tornadoes, the droughts, and many other evils and calamities strike the world at various places and parts. Hardly anyone is quick to realize and know that it is at your hand. You've told us that you have your way in the whirlwind. And when we and when we read the scriptures, even the history of Israel of old, when a king or a nation would come against them, the testimony is, according to your word, that you stir them up against them. And oftentimes when the nation was in walking in disobedience to you, the testimony is you send other nations to destroy them or judge them in various ways. Sometimes you would send a drought, as you did in the days of Elijah, and even follow it up with a huge thunderstorm. Sometimes a king would go into battle and he would di disguise himself as not being a king and try to uh, hide himself in the midst of the battle. And even when the command of the enemy was to fight only with him and only destroy him, it wasn't the direction of the commander-in-chief on the other side that took the king down. He was some lonely, lowly, I should say, no doubt, some just common soldier that pulled a bow at a venture. He wasn't taking particular aim at anyone or anything. He just knew the enemy was on the other side and he just uh, threw an arrow in that direction. But it was you that caused it to find the, 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 the chinch in the armor of Ahab and fulfill the word of the Lord 
and the dogs licked the blood of Ahab in the vineyard of Naboth. It wasn't just some fortuitous concourse of happenings that caused the chariot to be washed out in Naboth's vineyard. And that the dogs would consume Jezebel. Some 20 years later, it come to pass. No doubt everybody had forgotten about the words of Elijah and laughed about it. But it came to pass. How much things like that are continuing today that we fail to notice and fail to look and think it's just some chance happening of nature or just the uh, unintentional happenings of man without your sovereign disposal. But you're the same God and as we have said before many times in quoting your word from the psalmist, the wrath of man shall praise you and the remainder of wrath you restrain. Help us, our God, as we look into your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming back to 1 John chapter 4. We want to look this begin looking today at verses 4, 5 and 6. We remind you that in the first three verses, John is or was encouraging the saints to try the spirits. We are commanded to do what God works in us to do. And as I said in my prayer, we are not uh, astute to be able to uh, define where one begins and the other stops. We just know it all works together. It's kind of like uh, taking some flour, uh, an egg, some milk, some shortening, and maybe some baking powder or soda or something, and we see each one of those things individually. But when you put them put all of those ingredients in a bowl and mix it together, we can't tell you where the egg starts and where the flour starts. We can't tell you where uh, the shortening starts or where the salt or whatever seasoning we may put in there stops. And so it is with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. 
Man likes to think he can figure God out, but we can't figure God out. We're just to humble ourselves before Him. But we see that in verses 1 through 6 of 1 John 4 because the first part tells us to try the spirits. And we went at great lengths to uh, try to explain somewhat of that. But then he tells us in verses 4 through 6 that we are overcomers. He didn't tell us to overcome. He didn't tell us that we should overcome. He didn't say that you ought to overcome. He said, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Notice that. Oftentimes, we as ministers will come to a passage like this and we'll preach a sermon on how that you uh, should overcome and how that you ought to overcome and, uh, and what you ought to do in order to overcome. And I don't say that such sermons as that uh, are bad. I'm not uh, trying to uh, uh, tear that down. But oftentimes the Scriptures are not telling us what we ought to do, but that the child of grace is or has done it. That's what's being said here. But let's read verses 4 through 6, lest I get ahead of myself. Ye are of God little children. He didn't say, ye are of God, old men. He didn't say, ye are of God, young men, as he made a distinction in chapter 2, little children. Well, we'll say more about this as we go further. I am persuaded that this little children, as we have shown it before, and we'll reiterate it again, he's talking about all of God's children. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, we'll say more about this, though I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I want to point it out Notice it did not say, greater is you. I don't guess that's good English. <laughs> greater are you than he that is in the world. Didn't say you are greater, but the Spirit of God that's in you is greater. See, sometimes we try to we, if we're not careful, we'll read passages like this and say, well, I, I don't know how I can be greater than the devil. But he didn't say you were greater than the devil. 
Didn't say you were stronger than the devil. But it does say, in the overall context of it, that because of the Spirit of God that's in you, the devil is not going to destroy you. Not ultimately. He may trip you up. He may cause you to be involved in things that you ought not. I'm not prepared to say how much a child of grace will not or will sin. We're all sinners. And sometimes a person can get caught up in a situation that it sure looks like from our perspective that he's not one of the Lord's when he is. And then we may make the conclusion of one that he is the Lord's when he's not. They, verse four, the first, excuse me, verse five, they are of the world. Who is it? When it says they are of the world, who's he talking about? Well, we're going to have to look at that. Somebody is not of the is of the world. Obviously, the false prophets are of the world according to the overall context. And obviously, those who deny that Jesus is the Christ is of the world. That plainly said in the first uh, three verses, they that are of Antichrist are of the world. You know the old saying, if, if an animal looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and walks like a duck, it's a duck. And if somebody uh, looks like the world, and walks like the world, and talks like the world, then uh, obviously from our perspective, they are the world. It goes on to say, therefore, excuse me, yeah, verse 5, therefore, speak they of the world. In other words, they talk like the world. They say what the world says. They do what the world does. They follow the teachings and the guidelines of the world. They are led well, 
I've got several things going through my mind here, but uh, they are led by what they are, what are, what the world teaches. Say in the news media instead of what the Bible says. They follow the politicians rather than what the Bible says. If the politicians say that you should not go to the house of God and worship on the Lord's day, then the world says, well, we'll sit at home. Now, there may be times when a congregation needs to stay at home. For example, if the majority of the congregation or just about everybody in the congregation is sick and needs to stay in bed and get well, then it might be wise for the congregation not to meet. That's obvious. But what we're talking about are mandates from the experience of the last uh, two or three years. A lot of people meet together on online services and they call that church. That's not church. Ecclesia, the Greek word ecclesia, means assembly or congregation. You can't have an unassembled assembly. You can't have an unassembled assembly. I know of some situations where people, preachers get online. And by the way, I'm not against having Bible studies online and things of that nature. But I know where preachers get online and they preach and they, they designate that particular uh, time of getting together such and such church. Well, it's not a church. And any minister that knows anything about the Bible ought to know it's not a church. Not according to Scripture. I need to come back to reading, finish reading verses 4 through 6, lest I digress too much. But the world, uh, they, uh, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Not only do they hear the world, the world hears them. We are of God. Notice, it didn't say we think we are of God. We might be of God. 
Beloved, we are to know whether we are of God or not. And that's not with a haughty, high-minded attitude. But we are supposed to know whether we are of God or not. And the only way we can know that is, are we, are we following the Word of God? I want to, I'm going to interrupt again. I'm going to digress here for just a moment. I read something this past week where a minister made some comments on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. And I won't say everything that he said because I really don't remember everything. But he said, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath chosen you from the beginning, excuse me, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And they said, That's not God choosing people to be saved from sin. And that's something that God may have chosen some folks, but He didn't choose everybody. That is, He didn't choose all of His people. But it's only limited to some of God's people. How are you going to get that out of that? I mean, you have to say chosen doesn't mean chosen. Salvation doesn't mean salvation. Second Thessalonians two thirteen. So God chose from the beginning. When we talk about the beginning, what do we talk about? Before the world was. I mean, just just read the Bible. Somebody has to have a preconceived idea to come up with explaining away the scriptures like that. That's what we're talking about here in First John. Well, back in First John, we are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. Now, let me say this. I believe I'm of God. I believe that what I preach I do my best to preach what the Bible says and not make up stuff. Even when I preach through the book of Revelation, I was talking to someone uh, one time and he said, I've been listening to your sermons on Revelation. I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, I think you say I don't know a lot. And I considered that a compliment. I don't want to make up something if the, if I don't know. If the Bible doesn't say what it is, I'm not going to say it means something else. When it said an angel came down from heaven 
and he put one foot on the land and one on the sea. I'm not going to say that angel is something I don't know. Some say it's Christ. Some say it's Gabriel. Some say it's uh, uh, Micah. Some say this. Some say that. Say, well, what do you say? I said, it's an angel. That's just what it said. I don't have the right to make up something. And you don't have the right to make up something. Sometimes when it talks about an angel, it is talking about Christ, but the context will make it plain. And if we are of God, if I am preaching of God, then God's people are going to hear what I have to say. That doesn't mean everybody, but I mean, uh, when people hear me, if I'm on the right page with God, and they're on the right page with God, they're going to believe what I preach. And you, beloved, as you go out into the world, and you speak to people about what the Bible says, if they are of God, they're going to hear you. They're going to believe you. Now, that doesn't mean that when somebody hears you and they haven't heard about election and predestination and things like that, that doesn't mean that they say, well, I never heard that before, but I believe it. Now, if they are of God... They may say at first, well, I don't believe that. And then go home and get to studying to try to disprove what you believe and wind up proving it. In other words, it'll be a process 99.9% of the time. Particularly if they haven't been introduced to the truth of the Scriptures beforehand. But my point is this. If you are telling them about election and predestination, and you say, well, I know it's in the Bible, but I don't know where, then you don't have a right for them to believe you. But if you can say election is talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Predestination is in Romans 8, uh, 29 and 30. In other words, if you can take them to the Scriptures and show them where these terms are used in the Bible and where these, where, what the, what's taught about that is in the Bible, then... Those who love the Lord and have the Spirit of the Lord, they're going to bow to the Word of God. I do believe that. Like I said, it may take a while, but I believe that they will eventually consider what you say, not because you said it, but because, hey, that's in the Bible. Y'all have heard me say this many times when I was a teenager and 
the first conversation I can ever remember having with one of my parents was with my mother, and I asked her about what is it that we believe that's different from uh, most of the other congregations. And she started talking to me about God's election and God electing the people before the world was. And I had enough love and respect for my mother. I sure didn't sass her and I didn't talk, uh, talk back to her. But I remember saying to myself, I'll never believe that. But lo and behold, when I began studying the Word of God, I soon found out I was wrong. We are of God, and he that knoweth God heareth us. Say, well, I know so and so, and uh, they don't hear me, and they don't believe like we believe, and, and I know they are of God. How do you know that? What are you going to do with those verses? You're going to explain them away and say that it doesn't mean what it says? He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John says, this is the way you know what's true and what's wrong. Plain. Plain. Well, it took me a long time just to read it, didn't it? Ye are of God, little children. When it talks about that we are of God, I believe that it's more than just election. I believe it is inclusive of God's children that have been regenerated and brought to faith. Notice he didn't say, ye were of God. He didn't say you were the elect of God, but you haven't been born again yet. He's talking about little children that have... He's talking about God's children that have overcome the wicked. You see that? So I believe that it by I believe that it includes more than just the election of grace, but it includes regeneration and being brought to faith in Christ. 
little children. You remember in chapter 2, First uh, John, he said in verse 12, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you and for his name's sake. I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because you have known the father. I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you and you have overcome the wicked one. So there in 1 John 2 verses 12 through 14, he talks about little children, young men and fathers. But he uses two words in there for little children. One of them denotes little children. <clears throat> but the other one, little children, which is our word here in 1 John 4, technion, it's talking about little children as describing them as children of God. Let's look and see how this word is used in some other places where obviously it's talking about all of God's children. The Gospel of John chapter 13. This is really uh, teaching again that which we have taught before, but as you know that uh, we believe in the line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept uh, view of, of, of education. John 13, verse 33. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say unto you. So notice here, he's talking to his disciples and he calls them little children. He's not just talking about people that are young of age. You say, well, how can you be sure of that? Go back when you're at home today, read the entire 13th chapter. You'll see that by the context, it's obvious. Galatians chapter 4, we see this word again. And we could use many others, by the way, but Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Paul talks about, he's talking to the saints 
at Galatia. He's talking to the to all the brethren in the congregations in Galatia. He says that in the first verse. To the churches, congregations of Galatia. Verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. But here he's calling... All of God's children, little children. You see that? Now for time's sake, let's just look in 1 John. Just 1 John alone. We're going to see how this word technion is used throughout has used throughout 1 John, 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Verse 12 of 1 John 2. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. We know it's not just young folks whose sins are forgiven. All of God's children. Verse 28 of chapter 2. And now little children abide in Him, that when He shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Then, in our verse, 1 John 4, 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. And then lastly, in 1 John 5, verse 21, the last verse, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. So I think it should be quite obvious where he talks about here in verse 4, Ye are of God, little children. He's talking about all of God's children, not just some of God's children. He's not talking about just a special group of people to whom John was writing, but to all of God's children. What does he say about all of God's children? First of all, they are of God. And though all of God's children, I would assume, have not yet been regenerated or brought to faith, I would assume, since we're still alive on the earth and the Lord hasn't come back, if He were to come back right now uh, within the next second or two, 
then obviously I'd be wrong. <laughs> and you say, well, you still could be wrong if he doesn't come back for a hundred years. Well, that could be. He might not regenerate or bring anybody to faith for another hundred years. Not likely. Though I don't know the mind of God. But I want us to see the connection of it all. Ye are of God, little children. Not only are you of God, you've overcome the wicked one. You've overcome them. You've overcome the false prophets. You've overcome them. This word overcome comes from the Greek word uh, either nakeo or nikon, which is the Greek god for victory or the Greek goddess for victory. That's where the uh, the uh, uh, ball shoe or snickers or the shoes the uh, that's named uh, like Nikon or, or Nike I think I pronounced it right anyway it, they it's named from that Greek goddess for victory and uh, according to the Greeks uh, and the statue that I saw uh, in Greece uh, some years ago, uh, it showed uh, Athena holding Nikon in her hand and had the and supposedly had the wings on it because it would when victory was told in battle. Uh, the Greek god Nikon would fly quickly to give the news of victory. But the goddess Nikon, when I was in Athens, didn't have the wings on it. Because some of the pagan nations that came in against Athens in the prior wars uh, knocked the wings off because that way it would show that they were stronger than the goddess Nikon or Nike, and uh, the victory wouldn't be given, and they would win over the Greeks and uh, all such tomfoolery as that. But this word for overcome comes from this word from the Greek language and the Greek uh, God with the idea of being victorious or victory. Victory. Let's look at a few times where it's used in the Scriptures. We'll just kindly really introduce it because uh, in Revelation I want to give somewhat uh, time to it 
We don't have to do that this afternoon, but look in Luke chapter 11. I'll read verse 21 to get the context. The word is in verse 22. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him, and, there it is, overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. Overcome. John 16. John chapter 16. Last verse, verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Romans chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar as it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Romans chapter 12. The last verse, verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm going to stop there because the next place Places I want to show how this word is used is in First John and in the book of Revelation. But we'll take that up this afternoon. But I want to show you that an overcomer is one 
that is not overcome by the world. He's a person that has overcome the world. God's children are described again and again and again in the Scriptures, particularly in the book of Revelation, as we shall see, as overcomers. And as we have seen here in 1 John, little children, God's children, are designated as overcomers. They are of God. They are not of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You for Your grace that is efficacious not only in bringing us from a a state of death in sin to alive in Christ Jesus, but keeping us alive and causing us not to be submerged and drowned in the world and its system. We look at people that are deluded by the lies and the cunning craftiness of the world and by Satan. And oftentimes we say, that's so obvious. How could they be so fooled? But if it were not for Your grace, we would be just like them, if not worse. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.